happy Super Bowl Sunday. Go Eagles. Amen. Can I have an amen? I'll tell you what, though, as big as obviously a football fan I am, in all honesty, what we just did together is better than any Super Bowl. So, amen to that. Well, turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning as we continue actually our fifth sermon in that one chapter. We have preached the pants off chapter 7. So, uh, this is our fifth week in that chapter, and, and we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is about relationships. That's why we've called this series Greener, Tending Relationships with the End in Mind. And oh my, oh my, are we not tempted to peer on the other side of the fence and simply assume from observation that it is better on the other side? That is a lie. I am reminded this week that Satan spends 168 hours a week trying to deceive you and I. That is his full-time job. John 8, Jesus describes him as a liar and the father of all lies. He never stops. And there's no area I think that he tends to do that more in than our significant relationships. <clears throat> the truth is, <clears throat> whether we're single, married, remarried, divorced, or living our lives without our spouse because of their death, we all have these unique challenges and struggles and temptations in whatever relational status we find ourselves in, yet we can often think that it is better on the other side, that their circumstance somehow is better. So here's what Paul does. He started off, and, and we sort of pushed forward to verses 17 through 24, because 17 through 24 was sort of the undergirding foundation of the whole chapter. And Paul speaks of these significant relationships when he speaks of being content. Paul knows that contentment is elusive, because sin is pervasive or universal. Paul knows that. So he speaks to it and he says that you and I as Christ followers can actually bloom where we're planted. Remember that? That we can be content in whatever relational status or circumstance we find ourselves in. That God in his word calls us to allow our status in Christ, not our circumstances, to dictate our sense of contentment. That God in his sovereign goodness really is using every circumstance to conform us into the beloved image of his own son. I went over this yesterday in, in a devotion Joel and I had together, Philippians 1.6. It is simple, but it is profound. Paul said this, I am sure of this. And I asked Joelle, what does that mean? She said, he's sure of it. I said, amen. That's the Greek, right? <laughs> There's a certainty here. He who began a good work in you, a good work in you at the moment you trusted Christ, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
she asked, we looked at this verse first, first, and she said, what is that good work? And I turned it over to Romans 8, 29, and I said, that you may be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what he's doing in us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot see his hand, meaning in our relational status, we must trust his heart. And how do we see his heart? How do we trust his heart? We stare at the cross. Because his shed blood says, I love you, I am with you, and I want good for you. And I will make you restless until you find your rest in me. Those are comforting words to me and I hope to you. And then after that underguarding foundation of chapter 7 on contentment, Paul digs down into, if you would, the details of our relational statuses. Sex and marriage, singleness, divorce, marriage, remarriage, and all of these, and all of these, he helps us as Christ followers to tend to those unique challenges and temptations that these bring us. The truth of the matter is this. Left to our own, without God's word as a guiding light to our blindness, we are all in big trouble in these relational areas, are we not? The evidence is overwhelming, both in our lives and in the world around us that we look at, that unless we get this divine instruction that we desperately need, we will certainly experience human destruction. No doubt about that. And so Paul digs down into that. And then lastly, this morning, as we finish this chapter 25 through 31, Paul, in a sense, he's got the undergirding foundation. He gives us the details, and then he puts the roof on or puts this, the icing on the cake of this uh, relational cake that he has been baking for us. And the ultimate truth that allows you and I to stay faithful, this is what he does this morning, in whatever relational status we find ourselves in. Matter of fact, it is the crucial truth that allows us to turn our face toward God and walk with him well for a lifetime. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And that's why I've called this the radical wisdom with the end in mind. Not just radical wisdom, but the radical wisdom with the end in mind. Paul says that is this truth, this perspective, this view of the world, that unless we have that, it is difficult to navigate whatever relationship status we are in. When I use the word end in mind, it simply means that you and I, if we know Christ, are a people, yes, a peculiar people, Think about that, of people who believe what they do not see because they know it's true by faith in which our eternity has been determined if we know Christ. Yes, there's struggles on this side. There's surprises on this side. It's harder than we ever thought, but there's such certainty on the other side. And in that, this certainty has been determined by Christ in his shed blood for us. So, with the end in mind, he gives us these new set of glasses, this new way to view 
any circumstance. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were those who thought most of the next. There's something about our eternity being determined that that changes how we live. And Paul's been addressing that throughout the whole chapter with hints. And now in this passage this morning, he nails it down. I think if Paul might take Randy Alcorn's quote and put it this way. The Christian who walks well in his or her present relational status, whatever it is, is the one who thinks most of the world to come. And so let's read, if you would, with me, verses 25 through 28. Now concerning the betrothed or the unmarried, I have no command or the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. So, Paul starts here in verse 25, and he says, To those who have never been married, Paul says here, I I, I can't quote Jesus on this. This is not something that is recorded coming from Jesus' mouth, but Paul says to us very clearly, I can give you this wisdom, this pastoral wisdom, if you would, because I am trustworthy. The Lord has been merciful to me. He has saved me. He has made me an apostle. You can trust me on this. I am his representative, and I can be trusted, Paul says, to give you wise counsel on this. And then the wise counsel or wisdom begins in verse 26 when he says, remain as you are because of the present distress. In verses 26 and 27, Paul certainly repeats himself of things that he said earlier in the chapter about marriage and about singleness and remarriage and remaining as you are. But we know if we, we, we think about uh, the biblical authors and what they do when they write, when they repeat themselves, they're trying to do what? They're trying to make sure we get it. So that's part of it here. Um, but also, Paul gives us a new application, the end in mind that we'll see later. Paul's counsel is that it is good to remain as they are, whether single or married. And the reason for this kind of wise counsel is this word present distress. That's the reason, because of this present distress. Now, that word actually, present distress, is translated violence or tremendous difficulty. It's a word picture of the tensions that exist between the creation and the fallen world we live in. Simply put, present distress means life is broken and hard. And it only takes a few years of realizing that. Read the newspaper one morning. We've all experienced it. It's also used to describe the persecution, in some ways the imminent persecution that was going to come To the Corinthian believers. And we know if anyone understood persecution, 
understood this present distress and what it does to a person and the extra pressure pressure it puts on someone who lives in this world, it had to be Paul. The next book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of these things about his own present distress. Imprisonments, countless beatings, often left for dead. Five times he received the 39 lashes of the Roman scourge, the same as Jesus received, but five times. Three times beaten with rods, he writes, stoned. You can imagine him being stoned, thinking back to him commanding others to stone Stephen. Dangers from robbers on his journeys, danger from the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the cities, he says, from wilderness, from the sea, from false brothers, and toil and hardship, he writes, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure to the elements. If anybody can understand what present distress, this word he used to pick here, it is Paul. Imagine having to wake up every day with your life being a threat or being threatened. Every day you could be killed or executed because of your faith in Christ. So here's what Paul knows. He knows the implications to our marriage or kids that lose a parent under persecution. He understands how tragic and horrific that would be. So he says he sees the value of being single. He also sees the value of remaining as you are. If you're a married person, the pressure of this present distress that would be happening to you is more than any human should have to bear. Now add on the top of that all that's happening in persecution, divorce. We know how divorce is for, the, for those under no present distress. And so Paul speaks to that here. Here's what we need to know in context as he writes 1 Corinthians. Less than 10 years after he wrote these words, the first general persecution by the Roman Emperor Nero took place. Paul, in that persecution, would actually be beheaded. Peter would be crucified upside down. Erastus, who's spoken of the scripture in several places, was the city treasurer of Corinth. He was killed in that persecution as the persecution came down from Rome to the city of Corinth. This persecution lasted over 200 years. Paul speaking to what he senses is boiling and about to boil over in the next few years there in Corinth. Now, you and I live in a place where that kind of violence and persecution hasn't hit us yet. But many of our brothers and sisters around the world live in that every day. More Christians are killed today than for their faith than any other time in the history of the world. I read uh, Christianity Today's yearly report, if you would, on Christian persecution uh, this week. And it says that 215 million Christians experience extreme persecution around the world on a weekly basis. So there's something to what Paul is speaking to here. The second thing he says is if you do marry, you will have worldly troubles. 
Paul again repeats what he said earlier. He says, if you do marry, it's not sinful. Marriage is beautiful. He wrote about it in Ephesians 5. Jesus said it's beautiful. It's glorious. It's God's first institution. But he said, know this. If you do get married, you will have worldly troubles, and I want to spare you of that. What does worldly troubles mean? It's translated troubles of the flesh. When I read that, I thought, Lord, the Bible is true. <laughs> if you are married, you are acquainted with this kind of trouble. Two sinners living together kind of trouble. Trouble, it gives us this word picture. If you look at the word of being squeezed, to press together, and is used in the context of grapes being crushed to produce juice. Just nod your head with me, right? Two sinners press together and you get trouble. I never knew how sinful I really was until we got married. And my wife certainly had no idea because her middle name was nice. My mama said, you married an angel. And if you ever come to me and say you got marriage problems, I'm going to tell you you're crazy because you married an angel. Now, how does that go, right? But then she gets married. Anger, selfishness, child, childishness, being petty, hurtful, dishonesty, deception, self-righteousness, thoughtlessness. And here's the deal. It hurts more because of the unique intimacy that you share with one another. You not only have to deal with your sin, but you got to sit deal with the sin of your spouses. The potential for misery in marriage is greater than in being single because when you're single, only one person can make you miserable. <laughs> you get that? The only thing worse than, you, than wishing you were married is wishing you weren't married. Then you add children into the mix. And they, they look so sweet. But it doesn't take long. It really does. It doesn't take long. You have these, these, these little sinners, and you put them into this, yeah, this pressing, crushing mix. There's just great complexity. I know personally, having to deal with my own sin, and at the same, very same time, trying to shepherd and lead my wife and kids is no doubt the hardest assignment that I have on earth to preach the gospel to myself in the midst of wrestling with my own sin and yet turn to my wife and kids and try to lead them in the ways of Christ. That's the complexity Paul speaks of here. So if you are single, do not look to marriage, singles, as your solution for your trouble, but know it is actually the multiplication of your trouble. That's what Paul's speaking of. Marriage intensifies human sin and weakness because it puts you under this microscope of another person. Being lonely is painful, no doubt. But being lonely in a marriage is so painful because someone you are so intimate with has become so apathetic towards you. Paul says in this first part, Remain as you are. If you're single, remain single because of the present distress. If you're married, remain married 
because of the present troubles of this world. Now Paul turns his attention away from the particulars of the relational statuses people can have, single, married, remarried, etc. And he sort of turns to the whole church and the evidence by that in verse 26, Paul, the, the, the scripture says in the ESV, brothers, but it's actually translated, I tell you, brothers and sisters. So it, it's sort of like he's been focused right here with his telescope, and he's talking about marriage, remarriage, and all the relational statuses. And then for these last couple verses, 26 through 31, he pulls back and he gives us this wide view of how we view every relational status and especially everything in life. It's a beautiful set of glasses that Paul lays out for us. So let's read those last few verses. Verse 29. He says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is a statement passing away. Paul gives this pastoral wisdom to every Christ follower. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. Marriage and sisters, marriage has no relationship to eternity because marriage, singleness, sorrow, earthly joy, material things, and worldly pleasure are all passing away, he says, because the time is short. And when we speak of that time is shorter, when Paul speaks of that, he's not talking about clock time. He's speaking of this era. He's speaking of this season. This set time is passing away. The picture here is that this time we live in is rolling up. It's on a continual roll up. It's coming to an end, Paul says. It's brief. It's, it's the word vanity, if you would. In Ecclesiastes, that means when you blow your breath in a cold air and you see the fog, as soon as you see it, it disappears. Paul speaks of that. He, he is saying that our relational status compared to eternity is short. Some have used this to, to uh, describe it this way. There, there's a dot of sand or a piece of sand here on a string, and the string goes into infinity. And the dot represents our time here on earth, whether you live 10 years or 90 years. Paul is trying to get us to see that. James in James 4 puts it this way. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Gone. Paul is saying, whatever our relational status is, is very short compared to eternity. And God's very design for us as his people is that we would attach very lightly to earthly things. That's what he's saying in those last two verses. He writes again, and I think puts it clear in Colossians 3. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I read an article this week by Jenny Ortland, Ray Ortland Jr.'s wife, and, and a godly woman, but she was so transparent. She said, "For I wish someone had would told me as a young woman, I tried my best to set my life up, marriage, things, career, all those things. And all those things that she worked toward, which is nothing wrong with that. She said, once I got them, then I spent the rest of my years in fear trying to keep them. Boy, I just think that describes the majority of us, including myself. Paul is saying here, it's fine to 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 enjoy those things that marriage and buying and selling and earthly pleasures that are not sinful and but we attach too much to them we are as god's people to grow in such a way that we set our affections on the things above it doesn't mean we're apathetic toward our relationships or life in general but we must see our relationships in all of life perspective that clearly understands everything in this world belongs to a time that is passing away. And then Paul uses that word. He says, the world as you know it is passing away. The form of this world that you know it is passing away. What exactly does that mean? Paul's saying here, marriage with our spouse will give way to our marriage to Christ, our groom, along with all believers for all time. Mourning and sorrow will cease as God wipes away every tear. Earthly joy will fade and will pale in comparison, will pale in comparison to eternal joy of heaven. Paul's saying buying and selling will cease since you and I will inherit everything in the new heaven and new earth, there will be nothing to lack for. Worldly pleasure in whatever form it takes will be replaced by the pleasure of a perfect union with God in Christ in a perfect environment of heaven. Paul's saying all these things and more are part of the passing scene. The form of this world as you and I know it, all those things that we do and more will be gone. You could go hashtag, it's gone. Paul is saying don't value human relationships, human emotions, human possessions, human pleasure above what they were intended to be, above their true worth. Meaning, don't let marriage be a distraction from your walk with Christ. Don't let human emotions distract you from Christ. Don't let materialism distract you from Christ. Don't let worldly pleasure distract you from Christ. Even though, in God's goodness, he's given us all those things to enjoy. Our tendency, if you're like me, is to spend an undue amount of time and energy on these things versus a healthy amount of time engaging with our intimacy with Christ. Here's what happens in my life. When I pursue Christ passionately and intentionally, 
it puts all those earthly things in perspective. And never have I been so miserable as to have those earthly things going well and not pursuing Christ. I remember very specifically back in the time in Cincinnati when Jenna was, was pregnant with Jess. She was on bed rest for six weeks. I was supposed to have a summer assignment uh, directing a project in Colorado, but uh, we got, that got canceled when Jenna went on bed rest. So I'm literally home for the summer. I got six weeks, six weeks to do, you know, take care of my wife and not have to work. And who wouldn't want six weeks off, right? We had friends, uh, players and their wives from the Cincinnati Bengals and Reds that would come over every day and the wives would stay with Jenna. Me and some of the husbands, we'd go fishing, you know, we'd go do stuff during the day because I was doing stuff in the morning and night. And I'm just telling you, I didn't pursue Jesus at all. And I was miserable by the time I got to those six weeks. Miserable, sitting in a little uh, a raft thing I had, I looked sort of goofy, catching bass and miserable. It was a great lesson for me. <clears throat> the truth of the matter is the more Christ-like I am, the better it is for Jenna and my kids to live with me. That's what Paul's saying there. Relationships and everything else become what they ought to be when our devotion to Christ is strong. Concentrate on Christ and your destined eternity with him, and the passing things will be as fulfilling as God intended them to be. We as Christians are not to abandon the world. We are to simply not let the world dictate our existence in it. None of the things on this list are to determine our life because Paul is calling for a radical new stance toward the world that is affirmed on the saving event of Christ who marked us for himself for eternity. So we will engage all these things in life, but we do so with the end in mind. And Paul says that end in mind will help you to persevere and be faithful, and to turn your face to God so that at the end, when it comes, quickly, quickly, the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, are the most glorious words they are compared to any kind of relational circumstance you have been in. I, uh, <clears throat> I remember... As a young Christian, I heard this story, and God has used it over and over to help me live life. My tendency is to live life with the present in view, not the end in mind. But I heard this story of a, a missionary who has spent 40 years in a foreign country, found out he had cancer, made some plans to come home and die at home in America around his family, Came on a boat, and as he arrived on the boat, pulled up to the dock, he noticed this huge party, and his first thought to himself was, man, they're, cele they're celebrating me. They're here to celebrate me, right? My friends and family and church are here, and they're throwing me a party, and he was so encouraged, and as he got off the boat and walked down the steps, and he got closer, he realized that it was just another party had nothing to do with him, and he felt so dejected and so disappointed. 
And it's like God's Spirit reminded him, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. There will be a celebration for you, friend, <laughs> but it's not here. Won't ever be here encouraged from each other? Yes. Paul said, live with the end in mind. I love how Randy Alcorn put it. He said, nothing is more often mixed diagnosed than our homesickness in heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii, a marriage, a, you know, whatever it is. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less can satisfy we need to understand that to live with the end in mind. And so take a minute this morning and just ask yourself some honest questions, as I've had to ask myself this week as well. Am I living with the end in mind? That's what ultimately matters. And when I do, if you're married, you become a better spouse, you become a better worker. You become a better father. If you're single, you become a better worker, a better servant, a better uh, uh, minister. Whatever you're doing, that is what makes the difference. Take a minute to ask yourself that question. Am I living with the end in mind?